Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hi, welcome to Fever Dreams. Uh, my name's Will Summer. I'm a political reporter at The Daily Beast and the author of an upcoming book on QAnon for HarperCollins. And I'm Aswin Subtang, but please call me Swin. I'm a senior political reporter at The Daily Beast and co-author of the book Sinking in the Swamp. All right, here on Fever Dreams, we're going to take you on plunges into the sometimes hilarious and sometimes scary world of the American right as they continue to influence our politics. Even in the aftermath of the Trump administration, the energy of these conspiracy theorists, these grifters, and these influencers is still pushing our mainstream political landscape closer and closer to a breaking point. Okay, I swear I am not making this up simply to stroke the ego of the guy who we are about to introduce. But just FYI, Fever Dreams listeners, I am a serial masochist, so I like to read the comments, read the tweets, I read the emails and the other messages in which you guys give us grief every week for the content and delivery of this show. A recurring criticism, as in one that I've seen multiple times, is variations on the following theme, which I'm about to lightly paraphrase. Gee, this guy Swin sucks so hard, we need to bring back stronger hosts to the show, like when David Roth was host of the show. Let me be clear, David Roth, who is a founder of Defector Media and a terrific sports and political columnist, has guest-hosted Fever Dreams precisely one time. This was last year when he joined us for hosting duties, not long after he first appeared on the show as a guest. So, without further ado, since the streets have apparently been calling for the return of the Roth, allow me to welcome our guest host for this week. Kelly and I would love to welcome Mr. David Lee Roth. David, how's it going? Amazing honor to be there. I'm glad that they're calling very strongly for to bring in a strong host. <laughs> the anti-swin block grows here. That sentiment is disturbing to me personally. But you can't argue with the rest of it. You know what? Like, obviously, I think that's a little, I think they're being very unfair and very nasty to Swin. But I'm glad to be able to come back and bring whatever is that I bring to your podcast. Just to be clear to our listeners, I like to repeatedly tell this hack joke that you have the same name and the middle name as the famous Van Halen singer. To be clear, your middle initial is J. Is this like Homer Simpson where it's... J stands for J. Yeah, it's a Harry S. Truman thing. It stands for Joseph. I could have been a DJ if I had been a completely different type of person. I could have gone as DJ in my youth, but I didn't. And I was a kid when David Lee Roth was on top of the world to take an actual David Lee Roth lyric. Use it there. (laughs) (laughs) And it wasn't the worst thing in the world. I mean, he was such a, a ridiculous figure and yet like so incredibly prominent. The thing that I had going for me there is that no one was going to confuse me for being his child (laughs) because I wasn't wearing like a jumpsuit and like doing weird dance moves and like razzmatazzy jazz hand stuff. Like I was like, I'm what you'd expect. Like I was a kid that would grow up to become a blogger. (laughs) And we're all glad that you took that path. Yeah, right. It's good to have the potential rebrand there if you need, you know, the career pivot. It's on hold for you. Like everybody else that works in this business, you have to sort of like bear in mind the possibility that things could go a various number of directions that you don't want. Like for me, like the absolute 
if everything goes bad, I could start a Substack and just write the opposite of what I think and feel about every issue <laughs> and probably make more money than I've ever made in my life. But the uh, the real, real worst one is touring with a Van Halen cover band and just sucking, but being able to be like David Roth and Van Halen performing tonight at like the Dave and Busters in Allentown, PA. <laughs> I mean, my out when all the business models for journalism finally get obliterated in this country is that I have the same nickname as the first name of a famous, I think, WNBA star, Swin yes, Cash. Yes, Swin Cash. So yeah. that's my out. You're going to have to work on your perimeter game, probably. Well, speaking of sports, I want to ask you about the just-concluded Super Bowl. Oh, yeah, I watched I that. have been very emphatic about this now that I am an, uh, an adoptive son of Ohio and I live in the Cincinnati area, that my heart is broken. I do not want to talk about my feelings and how I've been eating them ever since the results of Sunday's game. But what was your takeaway as you are one of the nation's preeminent sports bloggers? Is that really even true, though? It's legally binding, yes. Can I ask you a question before I answer your question? No. All right. Yes, fine. Go ahead. So you bought in. Like, you care about the Bengals now and you're sad It was lose. literally the first game of football high school college peewee pro any foreign or domestic literally any game of football i've ever been emotionally invested in, in my entire life it was mostly performative in the lead up to the super bowl because i want to give my in-laws here what they wanted but i ended up faking it until i made it i cared and i was so mad and fucking pissed for the rest of the night and then the following morning the bengals are a likable Team. I mean, I feel like if you had to like sort of get whisked into football fandom through the back door, like Goodfellas style, like this is how you would do it. You got a charismatic young quarterback and a bunch of like fun young players who all seem to kind of like each other and be admirably unproblematic. Hmm. There was this hilarious tweet I saw on Monday of this week from a guy named Andrew Lawrence, who's a f funny guy on Twitter who works at Media Matters, or at least has worked at Media Matters. And I'm not here to quibble with the, a fact check with the tweet because obviously it was a joke and obviously Cincinnati and Hamilton County are solidly blue and liberal and are not ones to go for someone like President Donald Trump. But the tweet was, I have not seen this many pissed off Cincinnati natives whining about something being stolen from them since January 6th. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, it's not ever wrong to make that joke like there's basically any nfl fan base give or take the 49ers that could be there and you get the same energy like it's not like jets fans like if the, obviously this is ridiculous the jets would never be in the super bowl but if they were that would be it's the same sort of energy it's weird with the bengals because that's like there's teams that i think of as having like kind of reactionary fan bases or just like sort of psychotic fan bases like the bills like there's a lot of of like sort of cop energy in that fan base but mostly those guys <laughs> are just about drinking like weird schnapps and jumping through folding tables <laughs> it's a wrestling experience first and foremost as a native bills fan yeah that completely checks out and that also explains my affinity towards cincinnati i'm like kind of small shitty cold city let's do it i have to clarify i vehemently disagree with that characterization of cincinnati <laughs> but we have to move on did you actually have fun watching the game i had had fun watching all the different ways that I could spend my money on cryptocurrency or gambling, <laughs> which I think was fully mm, seven eighths of the ads that ran on Sunday night. Yeah, it was all different ways to use your phone to have less money. There's sports betting. You got crypto. Hard to say what the metaverse's whole pitch was. I guess it's like the sort of the San Junipero episode of Black Mirror. That was the pull on that one. But yeah, pretty grim. I love it how it's now every celebrity that you've like, you're dimly aware of their work. It's like Larry David. Yeah, I, I know him. Or 
Matt Damon. I've avoided watching his videos for decades, but he's in the ecosystem. And the gang's all here now, and they're all on my TV telling me why I should buy into a cryptocurrency exchange. Not necessarily why it's good, but why specifically I'm missing out if I'm not dumping my money into into Coinbase or something. Yeah, it's all just FOMO. I hope that there will not be some sort of global economic incident of note triggered by cryptocurrency. Like, I don't uh, think that it's real. I don't think that there's like a thing that's necessarily like value proposition there that makes any sense to me. It's Beanie Babies. Yeah. But I mean, some people got rich uh, off Beanie Babies. So who's to say whether it's good or bad? Oh, and also Beanie Babies are tangible. They're cute. They're cuddly. You can snuggle with them. And in the same way, you can use cryptocurrency to hire a hitman or buy drugs. (laughs) But I think that with those ads, it's tough when you don't have a real like use for the product yet when you're like 10 years out and so all you really have is like enough money or like you can put quotes around that if you want to to hire literally anybody to tell people that they're going to regret missing out on this incredible opportunity and to me that's like the part of it i guess there's not like any sort of stigma as a famous person towards appearing in a commercial at this point because they they basically all are doing it but seeing the larry david one which at least was like a pretty witty ad like it was better than the usual for crypto stuff like it wasn't basically like a sports gambling ad that happened to be about crypto stuff where it's like a guy in a t-shirt being like you take it seriously kicking ass well i'm here to tell you like a new way to kick ass online the david one was funny but i was the whole time i was watching it i was like this guy absolutely does not need money like why would you do this like larry david the one thing everybody knows about him is that he's like god level rich i feel like all the celebrities who participate in this like i'm fine you know i can't begrudge anyone making money but i do want like a little cigarette warning on the bottom saying what they got their payment in like was it actually in litecoin or was it in real money that 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 they can spend on a third house that would be i mean i think that would be the thing that fundamentally destroys Larry David's image there too. It's not like everybody's like, yeah, rich guy making more money being in an ad. If there was a little disclaimer at the bottom that was like, he got a based ape for this, a JPEG of a based (laughs) ape. That's it. It's over for him. You can't come back from that. The Super Bowl was in large part running advertisement for crypto. Did it get into NFTs that much? No, I think it's like, again, it's sort of hard to, I mean, you'd use your cryptocurrency to buy your NFT, but it's like, the thing that was weird about the ads to me this year was like, again, as with like NFTs, anytime you have to like do a a shortish PowerPoint to explain to someone what the fuck you're talking about, you are in a really difficult spot as a salesperson, I sense. And so like the gambling stuff, it's easy. Like you put a bet on your phone and you make money or you don't. The crypto stuff, it's like they had to do the bouncing QR code or the FOMO stuff because it's like really hard to tell people what they'd actually be doing with any of the shit. Yeah. And I love how like a lot of the ads, they're either selling FOMO or they were selling like sometimes very explicitly the concept of community. Like if you buy into this exchange, you're going to have a community that's going to support your investing. And I just feel like that's a very pathologically online thing where like you don't actually have real people to talk you out of this. So the internet is your friend and all these people are following you around, giving you the thumbs up when you dump more money into dogecoin yeah that part of it is like the real ponzi energy behind all of it is that like all of this stops if new people 
don't go into it. There's not a proposition under it that I can understand. And so you need to get new people in there and you need to like love bomb them in like some discord channel or whatever and be like, you're making the best choice. But that's like, we're talking about Avon now or like right. whatever. What's the thing that's more contemporary than Avon that people sell? Oh, you've got your Lululemon, except not Lululemon. Um, <laughs> it's actually pronounced Lululemon, <laughs> but yeah. So. I'm mixing up my legging brands, but you know the one, except you don't even get some cute yoga gear out of it. You get, you're holding the bag really for someone who's going to get indicted in three years for some bizarre Ponzi scheme. Speaking of which, what was the major crypto exchange that has just agreed to pay like out the ass for something? Oh man, what was it? Hang on, I've got BlockFi. BlockFi, like literally just yesterday, agreed to pay $100 million to settle allegations that they broke security laws. And my favorite thing going on with this right now is the BlockFi leaders are now on Twitter saying, we have now regulatory clarity so we know how to proceed forward. This is actually great. We are not mad. We are laughing. And you should give us more money now that we're in the clear. I mean, it's just such a scam, right? They're just faking it until they make it or they have to pay a $100 million fine to the SEC. Also, they seem not to understand that laws are real, which is something it's sort of like a little bit charming, but also is ridiculous to see. Like, I've seen a lot of that. It's seasteading, but for money. Yeah, but also just like saying stuff and seeing if it sticks. Like, I remember I was reading a story in Vice the other day about how angry a lot of the sort of crypto lords are about a story that was in BuzzFeed that revealed the two previously anonymous people that are behind the Bored Ape Yacht Club NFT concern. And the way that people, I mean, they're mad and they're saying all the things that reactionaries say online about like somebody should sue them out of existence, like Peter Thiel did with Gawker. Or one person was like, their market cap's like 500 million. Like we could do a DAO and do a hostile takeover and just... <laughs> And there's a part where it's like, well, first of all, like you're 17, so you're not going <laughs> to. Also, you've got to manage BuzzFeed after that. So good luck. Right. Yeah. I was going <laughs> to say like, congratulations on. But even seeing like the way that like hostile takeover is used there where it's kind of like, I don't think you know what that is. Like, I think you just think that you have more money than them, which might be true, like depending on how much you think that the money that they have is really money. But it is like. All of it, like the stuff where they bought a copy of Alexandra Jodorowsky's the Dune storyboards, and then they were like, we own Dune now. Oh, my God. Like, yes. we're going to make a cartoon out of these. And people were like, no, man, you don't. Like, you bought a book. You didn't buy a copyright. Like, you bought an item. <laughs> okay. Before we get off the topic of our new beloved crypto overlords, just to connect this to what we talk about so much on the show in terms of like powerful and somehow influential online freaks on America's vast right wing. Who is the main crypto person in the Trumposphere? Oh, that's a good question. So imagine Trump as having a, like a large belly, like a whale shark, and there's all these different remoras <laughs> stuck. <laughs> so the ones that are located closer to his cloaca are more the crypto guys. They're not like influence dudes. Like there's not like a Pompeo coin. I like the whale anatomy here, but I just remembered our boy Mandel in Ohio. Josh Mandel. Josh Mandel. He is a big crypto guy and he was spouting off on Twitter talking about how fiat is dead and crypto is the way of the future. And he would like to be your next senator, Ohio. Fantastic. So when you have are the guy or you shared a byline on the story about how Trump considers Mandel to be a weird dork and doesn't like him. Is that right? Yeah. And apparently can't stop talking about his alleged sex life and personal 
life details, alleged details, unverified gossip behind the scenes. Yes, this is what your average routine Donald Trump political strategy session looks like. Yeah, just getting together at a dinner event in a room that's lit like the Verizon store and listening to him talk about someone that he met twice for an hour and a half. <laughs> and and bringing his penis into the equation for yeah, some reason. Yeah, terrific. Thanks so much, sir. But I mean, I feel like crypto is in some ways like perfect for that scene because it's the sort of thing, like beyond the fact that it's like sort of like the literal coin of the realm where like if you need to if you're matt gates and you need to pay roger stone three hundred thousand dollars right away he wants to be paid in crypto and you want to pay him in crypto and that's how that works but the idea of it as being like beyond all the talk about community and sort of upending the tyranny of fiat currency and federal banking or whatever like it's also the appeal there is that it's free real estate like the idea is that it's just like a thing that you can get in on the ground floor and pump it up and like you get out before everybody else does and fuck them and you're rich. Like that's Trumpism like writ large. I think that that was always a big part of what his appeal was to his base was the idea that not that he was going to make things better, but that he was going to cut you in. Oh, and I think that that's like, obviously the appeal of that is enduring. It's like hard to imagine changing systems such that they work better. It is much easier to imagine. And also you're rich at the end of it. If you just have like a buddy in there, who, whatever, cuts you a piece. Okay, and speaking of people who definitely have been cut into the benefits and the galore of Trumpism, we got to talk for a little bit now about Marjorie Taylor Greene. Obviously, many, if not all of our listeners know her as the QAnon lady, or at the very least, the quote-unquote former QAnon lady. She is inextricably tied now to anti-Semitic conspiracy theories online that concern Jewish space lasers or something of that ilk. And she is obviously nothing if not a vast pit of conspiracy theory mongering over Donald Trump's anti-democratic lies about the 2020 presidential election, about coronavirus vaccines, etc., etc., etc. She also happens to be, uh, by default at least, one of the most powerful people in the country because she sits in the U.S. House of Representatives as an elected official from Georgia. This is someone who our listeners are no doubt have become very familiar with over the past year or so. David, would it have surprised you a year ago? And does it surprise you now if I told you that she has actually become one of the most sought after political endorsements in all of the Republican Party when it comes to competitive primaries ahead of the 2022 midterm elections? It surprises me a little bit. And yet at the same time, it feels like it was always going to happen. Just being familiar with her work, the idea that somebody would choose to associate themselves with her and also then just like haul her up on stage so she could do burpees and talk about 5G or whatever. <laughs> like, it's not like a good idea to me. But at the same time, I think that you look at what it takes to win a competitive Republican primary now, and there's so many of them because basically every office holder on that side of the aisle that isn't sufficiently slavish in their devotion to Trump is going to get primaried by someone who is more slavish in their devotion to Trump. Like, yeah, obviously you just bring in the craziest person that's on TV the most. It reminds me of how a lot of female candidates on the right have explicitly called themselves like the conservative AOC. And usually I think that's just really, really tacky branding. Like it's a uh, whatever. I'm I'm the good one. But in this instance, there, I think, is some truth to that, right? I mean, she's a kingmaker, not necessarily because she has any sway over a candidate's district, but because people are like, I know that lady from TV. She's a great 
figurehead for kind of the atmosphere of a campaign, if not its actual platform. So it, it totally makes sense. She's Bizarro World AOC. Right. And what would the substance of that campaign even be? Right. I mean, that like it's beyond it being like a primary where all of these guys are just trying to, like, say the same lines louder than the people next to them and push their way to that person's physical right. Whatever. It's what it takes to be a Republican candidate right now, I guess. Like, it doesn't seem great for the state of the country, but we've got a lot of problems. That's not a new development. To me, the thing with her is that, like, it's, of course, if, if the whole idea of it is pure signaling and like just sort of like trying to find ways to link yourself to the sort of symbols of this movement then like yeah that's what she is like she doesn't do anything she doesn't sit on any committees she's not going to pass any laws but she's somebody where like you see her and you're like oh right that's the lady the one that's so upset about the thing that's a lady who cnn hates there must be something to her appeal and let me read real quickly from a story that our colleague Sam Brody and I put up at the Daily Beast last week. Coined to four longtime Republican operatives working at senior levels on a variety of competitive GOP primaries across the nation, Green's endorsement in competitive 2022 Republican House and Senate primaries is not only considered welcome, but also as one that should be actively courted, particularly in races where the nominee is likely to be decided by which candidate most animates the ultra-Trumpist grassroots. It is stunning, one of these sources said. Her popularity among much of the base and what she brings to a campaign right now is not nothing. Actually, it can be good for the candidate, and I don't know if I would have predicted that a year ago. Another one of the four operatives told us in discussing the most desired 2022 endorsements in the Republican fields right now, if you can't get Donald Trump, you are going to want to have MTG in your back pocket, end quote. Now, this isn't something that is just being discussed, albeit at a high level, among these Republican campaigns and operatives. And again, I must reiterate, these are not the fringe of the fringe candidates. These are the mainstream of the mainstream in what it means to be mainstream in a Trumpified Republican Party today. This is also happening out in the opening. We saw just in the past couple of weeks, J.D. Vance, of course, the author of Hillbilly Elegy, who's running against people like Josh Mandel to be the nominee in the Ohio race, trotted out MTG's endorsement vociferously. He was on Twitter. He did a public event with her. They sent out campaign press releases. They were incredibly proud to welcome this woman's endorsement as they are in a very competitive battle for the nomination in Ohio. Yeah. I mean, how much of this is just own the libs performance art, right? Like I said, this isn't really meaningful politics anymore. It's just bringing the lady from TV. She plays up these things that liberals perceive as gaffes. You know, the gazpacho police, I'm sure that was probably on purpose. She does not care at all about any semblance of like, bipartisan cooperation. She's pure anti-liberal animus. Yeah. I mean, well, what's the politics that any of these people would be pushing at this point? Like J.D. Vance brought her out because he's trying to convince people that he's a chud. <laughs> like that's the whole of is that she like, I mean, whatever the thing that's holding him back is that at some, well, I mean, there's a bunch of things that are holding him back. If you've seen him talk or even just seen a photo, of him. <laughs> there's a bunch of reasons why he's not going to get elected and why he's currently polling at like 5% in that primary. Right. And he was supposed to be the guy. Tucker Carlson loves him like. Tucker Carlson has basically de facto endorsed him multiple times on the show, and it is still not managing, at least for now, to move the needle nearly enough to get him over the Mike Gibbons and Josh Mandel-shaped humps that are right now all over this Republican primary. And they, they really are humps, Swin. <laughs> but there is 
a way in which like those guys, I think the reason you see like Gibbons, I mean, I'm not going to pretend I understand Ohio politics, but he's the most normal seeming Republican guy there in the sense that he kind of looks like an unsuccessful mid-major college basketball coach. Like he's an older white guy (laughs) with fluffy hair in a suit. Whereas like Mandel is weird. Mandel looks like he just hatched out of something. And J.D. Vance always looks like he just woke up. And they're in both of those cases are like Mandel is, I think, sincerely gross. Like, I think there's nothing that he wouldn't say or do, but he's not somebody that you want to spend a lot of time looking at. Vance, I think the thing that seems like it's held him back is that he once pretended to be a sophisticated guy. And now he needs to show everyone that he's like actually a hog. He's down with the space lasers theory. He's down with the he's Q-pill. Right. He's like, I want to apologize. He's going to like at some point before the primary, he will theatrically like return his degree to Yale (laughs) because of some controversy to do with their dining hall. Like he's like he will give it all up. I want to say it will definitely have something to do with critical race theory, but that is so 2021. In 2022, it's going to have to do with the truckers, I guess. But it's all kind of. It feels like it's the same beats, like slightly different lyrics to it. But the idea of it is that, and this is something that is kind of um, terrifying, but also interesting to watch if you pretend it's not happening to the country you live in. The way that like all of this conspiracy stuff can, like that the framework of it, of the grievance and then of the sort of like the networks and the the broader approach to stuff, that like it survives even after the ostensible animating ideological reason for it disappears like QAnon at this point is like it's by the boards there's still weirdos that believe it I'm sure but like it didn't happen we didn't do the executions Nancy Pelosi was not like hanged at Gitmo or whatever it was that they wanted and like but those groups are still together those people are still together they just like moved on to something else like with the trucker stuff like whatever that list of demands is like in Canada it is psychotic the stuff, I mean, they, like, want to appoint a woman queen of the country. Like, they've got a lot of weird ideas, but, it, like, it sort of doesn't matter what it is, because, like, they know they're not going to get it. The point is to demand it and also to try to, like, make other people uncomfortable through those demands. Yeah, and to that effect, I think it's very much the same with the Marjorie Taylor Greene, who explicitly endorsed QAnon in an old Facebook rant. And because the theory has sort of trickled away, at least in name, she can back away from it and say, I'm not a QAnoner anymore. But the network that she was speaking to, that conspiracy community on Facebook and its um, underlying emotions is still very real. And it's just moved on. It's just reconvened around some other cause. And that's why You can have someone like that endorsing a viable political candidate and they can be a sought after endorsement. It's because all they really care about is the energy of this anger. It's not the actual explicit claim. Yeah. The idea that the ideas are discredited is like they weren't like no one was really crediting that shit that hard to begin with. Well, and the reason I think this really matters, I mean, it's yes, it's Marjorie Taylor Greene. Yes, there is a massive performance artist element to it. But at some point in the modern day GOP, performance art has kind of taken the place of policy and also infected policy to to the nth degree. And when we're talking about like, okay, her endorsements actually matter now, I get that the gold standard right now for a Republican endorsement, if you are running for the U.S. House or the U.S. Senate, is Donald Trump, who was a twice impeached one-term loser of a president 
who presided over the creation of the coronavirus hellscape we're still in today, and also tried to lead a failed bumbling coup in Washington, D.C. So the bar for what makes a good endorsement, that's where it already is. But even with the bar being through the fucking floor on that, and as cynical as I am about the current state of the Republican Party and conservative movement in 2022, even I am a little bit surprised that she managed to gain this much clout in these primaries. I thought she would be relegated to kind of being a trinket here and there, and that is obviously definitely not the case. We'll see how far this goes. Kelly Weil, moving on. Who is the guest lined up for us this week? Our guest this week is Mac Lamoureux, a reporter on the extremism beat for Vice. Mac covers the far right, both in the U.S. and in his native Canada, which, as you might have heard on this podcast and elsewhere, is dealing with its own fringe anti-vax trucker protest. You can follow him on Twitter at Mac Lamoureux and check out his great reporting on Vice. And just a heads up for this next segment, a bit of a content warning. We're going to talk about some murders. Stick around. Fever Dreams, like all Daily Beast journalism, exists because of the generous support of Beast Inside members, the people who pay to access Daily Beast reporting and who are, quite frankly, our favorite people on the face of the planet. Want to get in on all the action? Join now and get unlimited access to Beast reporting, plus access to members-only podcast episodes, events, and much more. Head to feverdreams.thedailybeast.com today to see what you've been missing. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Fever Dreams listeners, welcome back. And we are joined by Mac Lamoureux, a reporter at Vice, where he covers extremism and has some pretty dark bangers on a far-right figure in the U.S. Mac, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Pleasure. Yeah, of course. So listen, I won't lie, we did kind of reach out because of the Canada angle, but before we get to the truckers, you have this wild investigation of far-right extremism stateside. And can you remind our listeners of who Lyndon McLeod was for folks who missed that story at the time? Yeah, Lyndon McLeod was kind of a manosphere figure. He wasn't very big. He had written several books called Sanction. It was a three trilogy novel, fucking long, two and a half million words in total. Uh, yeah, I know. <laughs> a million words? Two and a half million words in total, yeah. That's too many. Though. Way too many words. <laughs> and it's kind of like this hyper, it's a sci-fi novel that's about Sigma males, that's hyper-violent. But on December 27th, he went to downtown Denver and in a kind of very targeted night of bloodshed, he killed five people that he was connected to. And after that happened, it actually came out that inside those books, he had given the main character his real name. He had penned the books under the pseudonym Roman McClay, and he gave the title character the name Lyndon McLeod. And in that book, Lyndon McLeod goes on a murder spree 
and kills some of the people that the real life Lyndon McLeod would kill three years later. I hope you're following that. It's a little convoluted, but incredibly dark. Yeah. And so you mentioned the manosphere and for blissfully unaware listeners, it's not like some like troposphere atmospheric level. It's a weird and dark part of the internet. Can you give us the rundown on what goes on there? Yeah, so the manosphere is just kind of this big catch-all term that kind of covers the anti-woman parts of the internet, I guess you could say, the pro-masculinity parts. Masculinity and hyper-aggressive bunny ears, but yes. Yeah, Yeah, the manosphere is huge. It's this really dark, vile part of the internet that kind of encompasses all these kind of men's movements. Not all of them have overlap with the far right, but quite a few do. Think of kind of the men's rights activists, kind of MGTOW, which are men going the own way, like men who have signed off with women, signed off dating women, I should say, pickup artists, incels, to a point are a part of the manosphere for sure. But it also kind of covers this sort of hyper-masculine sigma male kind of community that idolizes violence. And that's kind of where Lyndon McLeod kind of fit into this and his work sanctioned. And he was actually like pulled onto several pretty popular podcasts, including one with, I don't know if you're familiar with like the right wing British influencer Zuby. He was on Zuby's podcast. Am I ever? Yeah. <laughs> we were all hoping that you'd mention Zuby. I love to be a hyper masculinist going on the Zuby podcast, which sounds like <laughs> Zaboomafu by Kratz Critters. <laughs> Let's talk about bringing men back to men, Zuby. <laughs> Zuby also has the distinction of being like a noticeable tick dumber than most of the sort of like Trumpy influence <laughs> online guys. Like you'll catch him in replies sometimes getting fooled by really obvious stuff. I was surprised by this. So I, I did read your coverage of it. I think I once you said million pages in the book, I was like, oh, right. It's the guy that, that shot a bunch of people. Like I was surprised at how like, I mean, obviously you have to have a pretty serious online news cycle brain damage to know who Zuby is. But like this guy got way more inside of things than your typical like damaged mass shooter type did. Yeah, for sure. Like he had a Telegram page dedicated to followers of him. He has a Discord dedicated to people that still right now are discussing his book. He was like a legit figure. He wasn't a big figure. But he was like a legit figure in this movement, for sure, you could say. So what your reporting does is you showed how even after this fucking massacre, the right is still idolizing him. And what's worse is that they're now monetizing a lot of his work. What did you find in your reporting? Well, I wouldn't necessarily say it's the right that's monetizing his work. So essentially what we found in the reporting is me and my brilliant uh, co-writer, Lily Moss. So when we started looking into it, we found that his last month specifically, but his last year was kind of unaccounted for. So we tried to figure out what he was doing then. And so what we were able to figure out is that after being kicked out by two kind of friends turned fans, he essentially went and lived with a woman that kind of became his romantic partner. I was able to actually speak with this woman and she told me that during the last year he was pretty depressed and had stopped kind of doing his art and was trying to make this podcast called Warhorse, and in doing so, he was making a film called Warhorse. Not to be confused with the Steven Spielberg movie, Warhorse. No, and definitely not a <laughs> sequel either. It's kind of like, you know how like these guys like idolize like Genghis Khan and like Jesse James, and it was kind of about that kind of outlaws 
relationship with like horses. They're horse girls. I appreciate that. And horse girls. Can't discount the horse girl. But long story short, he spent the last year of his life kind of making this film. And then we found out that he abused his partner and actually went to Denver by himself, stole a bunch of money from her and started making the final parts of this film. And he posted a trailer of it on December 24th, killed all the people on December 27th. And then a week later, a package showed up at his partner's door and in it contained a SD card with Warhorse, the film and the rights to the books. And he essentially said, go and make your money back for all the money I stole from you. That's not what it said verbatim, but it's more or less what he was implying. It's super dark. And like, so I do definitely view his partner who he was abusive to as a victim, but she has decided to put it up and and sell it in a way to recoup her losses. Not a decision I agree with, but I definitely have a lot of empathy for this woman. And it's just such a fucked situation. So I'm assuming you've seen the trailer. Have you seen the movie in full? I have, yes. Is it two million minutes long? It's 47 minutes long, to be specific. It's this really disjointed movie. A lot of it is like intercut with him like riding his motorcycle. It's his art. And he kind of has this really distorted narration where he kind of tells the tale of like Angus Khan, Jesse James, as I mentioned earlier, like these people who had a relationship with war horses. But in it, he also has footage of him loading a van with weapons, him with weapons, him dressed in in the gear that he would later use in his massacre. And it also shows him staking out some of the homes of his victims. Jesus. One of those victims actually survived. His name was Jeremy. And I spoke to him and I showed him images of it. And police hadn't told him that this video existed. So I had the pleasure of showing it to him for the first time, which is a weird experience. And yeah, he's just terrified. Said he just, he wished that he didn't even, he, Jeremy was also killed in the book by name. And he didn't even know that, even though the FBI were, well aware of this man uh, and no one kind of told him that this guy who had been investigated had offed him in a novel that he wrote where he made himself the central character explain what it was like like the second to second tick tock of of showing this guy the oh this is basically a psychotic crystal ball that foretold what could have very well been your death. Oh, it's not as exciting because we did it through text. So his baby was being really loud at the time. And he was like, that, this will just be the oh, best way to do baby. it. So I wish that it was more exciting than that. But like, it doesn't sound exciting. It sounds fucking terrifying. But yeah, go ahead. He actually had like, when Lyndon attacked his home, there was a three-year-old in the home. And Lyndon oh. knew that. And he was more or less planning on killing everybody in that home. So, <sighs> Oh, man. I'm profoundly depressed now. Do you want to talk about uh, truckers? Yeah, the non-depressing thing. Yeah, let's lighten the mood a little <laughs> bit. Yeah. Like, before we move on, we highly recommend you all do not buy a ticket to Warhorse or however they're selling it right now. But setting that aside, yeah, Mac, you have been following Le Trucker Saga up to America's North quite fervently and quite granularly over the past couple of weeks. Is that correct? Yeah, I'm kind of the Canadian correspondent for Hellworld. Mm. <laughs> I don't know how much of it's a U.S. export, but for the parts that it is, I am deeply sorry. So the way that I would kind of describe like the American influence on it, which is definitely big, is that like the instigators were definitely Canadian. We have this in Canada for sure. It started purely as a Canadian thing. They have been trying to do this for years and years and years. And like the organizers, like one of the main organizers is like an Alberta separatist. But like the American media ecosystem amplified the shit out of it. Would you argue that it was more amplified in America than even it was 
in Canada. That would be hard to say. There was a lot more cheerleading, definitely, in the United States. In Canada, it's... Oh, God. Fox News and conservative media want this so fucking bad. It was, like, dripping out of their pores for weeks. <laughs> well, you should see how they share... Tucker Carlson is, like, a god in this community. And it's been the biggest story in Canada for a while, but I wouldn't say it's been on, like, as cheered on. Like, they definitely received, like, a boost. And, like, when, apparently... Like, they've been just screaming at Canadian media, even like the writer wing Canadian media, they've been losing their goddamn minds at. But like when a Fox News host flew in and went in there, they were just like idolized and like. That's embarrassing, man. You got to get it together. (laughs) You get all starstruck around Neil Cavuto. Respect yourself. (laughs) It wasn't even that. It wasn't even that. It was like a field reporter I've never heard of. Oh, wow. Yeah. All we want is Big Brother's attention up here. That's all we want. So for our listeners who might be somewhat uninitiated, give us a quick log line, like nothing too deep, because a lot of them have heard nonstop about this for weeks. What exactly the hell was going on? What was bullshitty about it? And also, more importantly, from your perspective as an on the ground reporter, what was the most surreal aspect of this to cover? And kind of the log line would be there's been several protests across the country that are kind of ostentationally about anti-mandate. But as you know, when you kind of dig deep into all of this, it kind of turns into like a fever dreams where there's just this. Thank you. Dig the cross promotion. Love it. He said the name. <laughs> and so you kind of this mishmash of kind of bright wing grievances. A lot of them just want kind of Trudeau out. But like ostentationally, it's, it's about anti vaccine mandates. And there's been several across the country. Uh, There was one on the Ambassador Bridge in between Windsor and Detroit that actually shut down, I think it's like 22% of our country's trade when they shut that down. There's been one in Coots, Alberta. There's been one in BC. There's been one in Manitoba. But the big one has been in Ottawa, where these people have kind of dug into Canada's capital and been honking nonstop and shut down several cities. and. It's really quite something how they've been able to just kind of take over the city and the Ottawa police haven't done anything yet. It started on the 29th and they're still there. The way it kind of works is that on the weekends, all these protesters kind of come in and they have this big old fucking hoedown in Ottawa where they get hammered and dance and have this big party atmosphere. But in the weekdays, it's more of a kind of typical protest where they actually have set up like supply areas where they've got a shitload of food. They have former veterans that are kind of aiding them in kind of communicating and coordinating. And it's much more of a, I guess how you would call it, like, I don't want to use the term militant because it's definitely like nonviolent at the moment, even though people in Ottawa have reported harassment and everything. It could be emotionally militant, I guess. People have like definitely reported harassment and bullying, but it hasn't been like violent as you would think a violent protest would be. What is the most surreal or kind of noteworthy little thing that you yourself have covered on this? Like what stuck out to you? Okay, well, the, the weirdest thing for me is somebody who's been kind of following this really bizarre our shitty group in Canada for years and years and years is watching all the bigger reporters try and deal with all these kind of shit heels who are been like grifters in this community for years and they're just trying to figure out what their deal is and like just watching the the mainstream media kind of I hate using that term but I guess the legacy media I'll use the term has been coming to grips with how to cover far-right organizing within Canada has been incredibly surreal to watch and they are struggling a little bit how so? It's so nebulous, the leadership. And it's also you can't listen to what they say on face value. You have to dig into what they actually say. Like if they tell you, oh, we're only about anti-mandates. OK, cool. You can write that or you can go and listen to what they're actually saying in their speeches or what they're telling their audience so they can tell the press, oh, we're anti-mandate. And then they go and tell their audience 
yeah, we want Nuremberg 2.0 and we're going to hang all the politicians. That's the part that's been fascinating to me reading about it from a remove is that the actual demands are like floridly insane. Like there's a woman they want installed as queen and all they want to dissolve parliament. And yet like the way that it's talked about in our, I'll say it too, mainstream media is kind of like there's an attempt to, because it's a thing that's happening to sort of like retcon some coherence onto it that is seems to me not at all in evidence in the actual thing itself. There is some coherence in it, but you have to like remove yourself by 30 yards and squint very hard. And then you're like, oh, I guess I can kind of see a little bit of coherence there. But there's so many like within all of this stuff, it's such like a big tent movement. There's so many different groups and you're like, okay, even the leadership is like super nebulous. And then within the greater protest, you actually have like these more like insidious groups. Just yesterday, last night, RCMP in Alberta arrested a group that was in the greater protest who had a cache of weapons and a bunch of long guns handguns like extended magazines they apparently tried to run a cop off the road with a semi um and they apparently were digging in and if police tried to remove the blockade they were gonna go full i don't know ruby ridge on them or some shit like it wasn't gonna be good so like you have these different groups within this greater protest group but they only want to talk about the really soft side of this group well i think i know your answer to this next question but do you think this movement in canada and this attempt at a sort of transnational movement which is kind of aspirational at this moment do you think that is losing steam or picking up steam picking up steam 100 we're seeing like copycat convoys happening in like israel like denmark oh wow mm. in holland and we're obviously seeing American, my lovely colleague Tess actually put together a really good article that was kind of outlying the American attempt to kind of ape this movement. Like with anything, you're just going to see it kind of grow because there's been so much money raised around it. There was two separate campaigns on this that each kind of were able to crowdfund almost 10 million. When you see that kind of money around it, the effort that's going to go into replicating it is going to. And obviously there's the amplification and everything like that. But like these grifters love their money and they will chase it. The bit that I found funny about the because I read the Tess Owens story this morning that there's like one of the people I guess there's like to the extent that you can read the telegram chats one of the guys is like I'm getting a lot of like crypto come ons from people like I can't tell who's legit in here because like everybody's like yeah I really support your cause hey do you want to buy like it's called ass coin it's really important that you get it <laughs> Oh, the and amount of scams that are going to come out of this is going to be very funny and very depressing. So we've talked a lot about this movement from the right, but I think we're starting to see some kind of interesting counter organizing happening from the left. So can you tell us a little bit about how locals are responding to these convoys when they come through their cities? Yeah, so we've started to see like actual legitimate counter protests on the ground in Edmonton, my hometown. We saw a group of bikers actually just stop an artery. They just went and just, by bikers, I mean people on pedal bikes. Cyclists. Yeah, cyclists, not, not, <laughs> not bikers. And they just kind of stopped an artery. They just went and they sat in the middle of a road and they just didn't let them go and join the crowd. And in Ottawa, we saw crowds forming around protest trucks and were kind of getting them to leave. In one case, they actually wouldn't let the guy leave until he took, I think it was a fuck Trudeau sticker out, which was very funny that they're like, no, take down your fuck Trudeau flag and then we'll let you go. 
big boy. And then then they let him go. But like one of my favorite things that we're seeing is kind of an online organizing group that's kind of called the Ram Ranch Resistance. Oh, God, I love them. Go on. Yeah, yeah. So the Ram Ranch Resistance is essentially these group of definitely anti-fascists who have kind of taken to the communication apps that I think Zello, Telegram, all these kind of communication apps that these kind of organizers are using. And they're just spamming this, I don't even know how you would describe Ram Ranch, this hyper gay metal song about cowboys who, who love to suck and fuck. And I guess all these truckers are being like, Breaker 1-9, what's happening with Ram Ranch? <laughs> it's this super bizarre, incredibly wholesome, incredibly gay protest that I adore. And they're just disrupting their communications. and the, But they're also like, archiving it and doing a lot more than just playing Ram Ranch in it. But like at its heart, they're doing a very simple form of protest with a very wonderful piece of art. I love it. Anti-fascism can be accessible and pretty fun sometimes. I was reading some threads on it last night and it was as much fun as I've had reading about something really bad on Twitter, maybe ever. There was a bit just like I was sort of talking about highlights of what he was hearing in the Twitter spaces, I guess, where they had met up. And it was like a, a woman describing like the cops were very abusive to me. They told me to stop doing the thing that I was doing. And then just like apparently the next thing you heard was just the sound of a toilet flushing. <laughs> which like, that. Yeah, just a <laughs> so toilet. sick. I mean, like you just can't beat it. <laughs> So that's been very fun to watch. If this show doesn't end with just like an acoustic version of Ram Ranch, I'm going to be so disappointed. We're going to let you go in a moment, but we need to play you off with some version of this song. It will not be a toilet flush sound. I'm not going <laughs> to let him do that to you. I've heard your other podcast, David. <laughs> I think we found our outro right there. <laughs> Mac, thank you so much for coming on the pod. Come back anytime and stay safe and warm out there in the great nation of Canada. Thanks so much for having me. This was a blast, even though it was dark, but at least we ended on Ram Ranch. <laughs> Thanks, Mac. Hot, hard, buff cowboys, their cocks throbbing hard. 18 more wild cowboys out in the yard. Big bulging cocks ever so hard. Orgy in the showers at Ram Ranch. Big, hard, throbbing cocks. Ram and cowboy butt. It is my great honor to get to introduce a recurring uh, segment here on the podcast, the Fresh Hell bit. Kelly, uh, you have something on the beloved Tina Peters, who will be familiar to listeners and is doing something bad. That's right. <laughs> so this is uh, Tina Peters. And if I were to give a summary of Tina Peters, I would say, what would happen if the loudest conspiracy theorist on your Facebook page was also in charge of running a county's elections. That is Tina. She is in Mesa County, Colorado, and she is currently under investigation for allegedly leaking her own county's voter data to conspiracy theorists like Ron Watkins before speaking at MyPillow CEO Michael Lindell's cyber symposium on voter fraud, then going on the lam, then coming back and returning to her post. I bring her up again, reluctantly, because she has had a week too busy not to discuss on this podcast. She was accused of illegally recording a court proceeding on her iPad, which I might just put a pin on that. I love the idea of recording on an iPad. It is yes. extremely just like a very specific Republican over 60 act. It's so true. Every crappy email that I get whenever I write about politics, like the craziest ones. 
always sent from my iPad. I just reply sent from my iPad to those people and they get more mad. It rules. It rules because there's actual like legit footage pictures of her <laughs> holding this iPad, not very surreptitiously in a court where it says, do not record. <laughs> you are not allowed to record. A judge is being like, ma'am, you cannot. Always a fucking iPad. Well, it's a good thing iPods are small. And you can, like, hide them in your giant hat. The idea of holding up an iPad while someone is telling you to stop holding up an iPad and you're like, I'm not doing it. It's just, like, perfect, unbearable old person behavior. So you would love it because this iPad is a recurring comic prop in the days to come. So Tina Peters, the cops, of course, got a search warrant for this iPad to make sure that, yes, in fact, she was recording. They found her at a bagel restaurant where she would not turn over the iPad and people passed the iPad around like hot potato trying to keep it away from the cops. The cops were like, "Okay, like this has to stop. They went to not quite arrest her, but briefly detain her. She scuffled with police, tried to kick them with like she's wearing these little suede booties. And police are just being like, ma'am, you cannot kick. Like it really reminded me in many aspects of trying to put shoes on my toddler. And so, of course, naturally from that, she has since caught a charge for obstructing a police officer. She turned herself into jail on Thursday, immediately bonded out. And then that evening attended an election denialist event where another speaker called for the hanging death of Colorado's Democratic Secretary of State. Now, that is awful enough for an elected official like Peters to take part in. But I bring it up again because on Monday, Tina Peters announced that she is running for that same secretary of state role that she was in close proximity to someone who endorsed killing the current office holder. Okay, we constantly talk about how life is a Coen Brothers movie now when you're talking about the American political landscape. Would we call this a Coen Brothers movie? It's markedly darker than even like No Country for Old Men. It's like someone playing Yakety Sax, like, but with really grim footage. It's like if Yakety Sax were like a snuff film from the 1980s. (laughs) (laughs) Eli Roth's Yakety Sax. so weird because the people who are being pretty much outright fascists and who actually are office holders, they're not just people you can laugh at on Telegram, are also some of the most absurd characters. So I'm sorry, like I was having a chuckle at this bagel footage because it's so specific in its tenor. It's really weird. Um, And then it's like, oh, and also she just called for uh, murder, not her, but an associate. And she was proximal to it. There's still time. Let's draft Joe. But to Kelly's point, like so perfectly 2022 to have this experience of being like the most ridiculous people that have maybe ever existed in American public life, like are saying that they want to kill you. And you have to just kind of be like, you look stupid doing those kicks when the cop picks you up. And yet like they mean it. And I don't know exactly how to sit with that, but it is extremely of this moment. It's very hard to like calibrate the threat level because people are like, maybe you should think about taking some precautions in your home. And I'm like, I guess I'll get like water balloons. Like hard to decide exactly what level of murder clown we're dealing with. On that note, let's wrap up this episode of Fever Dreams from The Daily Beast. In future installments, we'll also be speaking to some awesome reporters and other colleagues at The Daily Beast and beyond, from politics, popular culture, and other overfed, underdeveloped institutions. We hope you'll subscribe to us on your preferred podcasting app and share the show on social media or at your family dinner table. If you'd like to follow us on Twitter, I'm at Will Summer and Swin is at Swin24. Come say hello. This podcast is produced by Jesse Cannon with music by Brian Demiglio. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.
Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com.